This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell from the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Martin Flanagan, welcome to Better Reading. Thank you. So Martin was born in 1955 and graduated in law from the University of Tasmania in 1975. He has written many books, a play and two film treatments. From 1985 to 2017, he wrote for the Melbourne Age on sport and other subjects. Now I've already declared because our listeners will know that Cheryl Arkell knows nothing about sport. Okay, just so you know, Um, but I'm sure the writing is beautiful. His latest book, The Empty Honour Board, is part memoir, part reflection on truth and memory and follows Martin's boarding school days, highlighting an experience many have had but few have talked about. The book is called, as I just said, The Empty Honour Board. Wow. I mean, it's, yeah, I guess my first question is why now? Um, Well, in 2018 and 2019, uh, a series of stories about what had gone on at the school appeared on the Tasmanian ABC online website by a journalist called Henry Zwartz. And then the Pell case descended upon it and suddenly I was surrounded by people telling me what the experience of the school was like. Everybody's opinions were black and white and the experience of the school was grey. And one day I said to my older brother, Tim, who'd been to the school, don't you think it's strange that all these people who weren't there are certain they know what happened when you and I were there and we're not? And he said, yeah, that's strange. And I kept on wanting for something of a documentary nature to appear, something like George Orwell's essay on his boarding school days called Such Such With The Joys, but nothing like that appeared. And so in the end, I thought I'd write something myself. And so that was the first half of it and a very unhappy place. And I'd had nothing to do with the boys who went there. Uh, But my brother, Tim, took it upon himself to start contacting people who'd gone there. And we had this day where 12 of us met and it was an amazing day and because everyone's thinking, you know, what was that place? What actually went on back there? And everyone was very gentle with one another and I'm thinking I like these blokes and and, uh, and one in particular, a fellow called Tony Newport, he persuaded me to go to uh, a ceremony the school held for victims of sexual abuse and that's that's the climax of the book. Mm. So the book is essentially um, about about your experience in a boarding school Um, and later on you discover, well, later on, was it three priests get prosecuted? Of uh, of the 
12 priests were on the staff when I went there. Three went to jail for crimes committed while I was there and their accusations against a couple of others. Hmm. I thought there was a bit of survival, you know, in what I read, and you can talk to me about this, but I thought there was some survival guilt there for you. I don't exactly know what survival guilt is, but the thing that impacted on me, and I'm not exactly sure why, but the thing that impacted on me profoundly was seeing bullying and being unable to stop it. And that included seeing kids get bashed. Mm. Um, I'm a sports writer. I like boxing. I've written on world title fights, but there's a difference between boxing and bashing. Bashing is when someone can't defend themselves. And that mortified me, and it mortified me in the way that seeing pictures of Ukrainian girl who's had her legs blown off and lost her mother in a Russian rocket attack has on me now sort of a numb paralysis and a, mm. a sense that the world is not actually a nice place and that this confidence we have that history goes forward, maybe it goes backward as well. Mm. Uh, well, I first felt all those things very powerfully when I was 11 and the shame that I had was a moral shame that I could do nothing about it. Um, I felt I had some responsibility to do something about it and I failed in that responsibility. And you can look back and say that's, you know, a totally unreal thing for an 11 and 12-year-old kid to feel, but that doesn't change the fact that you did and it doesn't change the impact it had on your life. Mm. It's interesting, bullying, and and that that you kind of talk about that because, I, I mean, I went to a Catholic girls' school and, and this this comes back to your experience as well. Like, where were the adults, right? Where was the supervision? What was going on? But I remember, you know, somehow I ended up in the popular girls' group, if you like. There were three or four of us. And one day we did bully a girl. We, we stole her sewing machine. It was in sewing class. Or we, we moved it or we did something that was terrible. And maybe you'd see that as a subtle act of bullying. But for her, it was traumatic. And do you know, that teacher pulled us all aside and she very firmly told us that that was bullying and not to do it again. And I remember being flawed. You know, I was embarrassed, I was flawed, and, you know, I didn't do it again. I really didn't. And I think that sometimes people shy away from confronting children about bad behaviour, you know. Yeah, well, I suppose in the instance I'm talking about there was no adult around to see it. And the adults didn't know about it. it. Because the school, you know, it was a Catholic school, I didn't see many of the kids. I didn't think many of the kids were actually pious or seriously into their religion of the borders. I, I thought yeah. there were only a handful. And so you've got a culture of the priests and sort of rigid Catholicism, prayers mm. before meals, prayers before class, chapel every day, mm. all that. But underneath it is the culture of the boys. It's a juvenile. The reality of boarding school for me was living in a juvenile culture mm. and that's a culture without adult intelligence or, you know, an Indigenous culture. There are no elders. And it's, so mm. it's a culture in which the young are making up the rules themselves and no one really knows what What's they're doing. What's going on. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so tell me how you ended up at boarding school at such a young age. <laughs> well, there's six of us and... The brother who's older than me, Tim, uh, he's two and a half years older and I signed the book that he likes going places and I like being taken places. And so from a very young age we did 
and we still do. We do a lot together. And he started school when he was five, and he took boarding school. No, no school. He started school. So I, I went with him to school when I was three, and I stayed with him at school. <laughs> and eventually, they put because Dad was the headmaster, and we were in this little country school in Tasmania. And eventually, so I started at four, I think it was, going on five, and I got to boarding school when I was ten, going on eleven. But it made me a clear year younger and more than any other kid in the class. And in a school where nudity is the law, you change in front of everyone night and day and the showers are open, that meant at a critical stage when adolescence hit, Mm -hmm. uh, my classmates were visibly becoming men and I was Mm -hmm. not. Mm -hmm. And the year that adolescence hit was the wild year. Mm, I can imagine. Did you miss home? Did How did you feel about going to boarding school? Well, I loved my parents and I respected them, but as a kid I didn't, I wasn't close to either of them. Dad had come home from the war. He'd seen a lot of horror. He'd been on the Burma Railway. Mm. He'd been between Nagasaki and Hiroshima when the atomic bombs went off, so he glimpsed this terrible alternative future and he basically spent, the rest of his life thinking about it. So when I was a kid, he hardly spoke at home, hardly mm. sp- he was remote. And mum was, at that stage of her life, she was a fierce Catholic. And just from just from the start, I never connected with it deeply. I, I, that's not to say I haven't met Catholics in later life who have deeply impressed me as people, and a number of them have impacted on this book. But as a child, I didn't relate to the theatre of the Catholic Church. I didn't relate to the rituals. I didn't relate to the language. I didn't relate to the costumes. It all seemed dead to me. So I didn't want to go. And um, and I'd do anything to get out of it. And this profoundly upset my mother. And mm. so she was often angry with me. So when I went to boarding school, I was glad to go. I thought it would be, be an adventure. Mm. Do you know, my mother said to me, she was profoundly religious as well. My mother went to Mass every single day. And I think when I was 16, she said, well, now you've got a choice of whether you go to Mass or not. I said, easy, thanks so much, and I <laughs> never, ever went back. <laughs> that was it for me. Yeah, you, know? yeah. you, got, you got out pretty easy for me. I did. And, you know, she was really, uh, she died only recently, but she was really understanding of my atheism. She was, nice. oh, we joke about it. Um, she had a deep belief and I didn't. But anyway. Oh. I think, you know, um, and you've studied the law, but I think there are so many crimes committed by um, adults to children. But I I would say one in a boarding school or one in a home has got to be worse than any other because isn't there an element of what do they call it, the legal things like fiduciary care? Like it has to be, you know, the biggest break of trust. Yes. Yes, it does. That's probably not the angle I come to it from because to me it was just this tragedy waiting to happen and it happened and it continues to happen, Mm. Um, not just in schools or in homes but, you know, it seems to be happening everywhere. It does at the moment, yeah. uh, And I'm I'm not pretending to anyone that I've got solutions to that. It's like to me it's it's like, you know, I'd love to end war but I can't. Mm. Um, And so... What I tried to do in the book was act as a witness to what I saw. Mm. 
When you were writing, so, I mean, you've written so much and writing a memoir, uh, it's funny this year too, there's a lot of, there seems to be a lot of memoirs. And I think Richard, your brother has got a memoir coming up as well, hasn't Mm. he? And a journalist asked me recently, you know, what's the difference between a memoir and a biography or an autobiography? And I said, well, you know, a biography is somebody we want to read about, really. It's usually somebody that, you know, like George Clooney, for instance, or whatever. But a memoir is usually a snippet of a person's life or experience, isn't it? And it can be, it's more about the experience than about the person. Well, this is called a school memoir because it details my school years Mm. and also the principal effects I think they had on me in later life. And the greatest of, you know, the great effect it had on me was that I came out of boarding school with a profound sense of failure because you in a boarding school where there is no elders, you get confronted with that up moral issues while you're a child and you fail and you fail and you fail and you fail and in the end what you know of yourself is failure. And so when I got into journalism, uh, having done a law degree and travelled the world and... Did you practise law? No. Sorry to break that thought. No. Yeah. Okay. Got my degree and left the next day. But, um, <laughs> but when I got into journalism, I found something I was good at and I found moreover that journalism, when it's done well, can have such good effects and good results. Mm, mm. Um, I got such pride out of that and I got such mm. a sense of meaning out of that. And, of course, as you would know, <laughs> in journalism there's always someone trying to interfere with your work and uh, alter things. And my boarding school years had given me a desperate need um, to do things right uh, because... I'll never lose the sense of shame and failure I had from my early life, even though I can look back and say, yeah, I was only a kid and all that. So what what those early years gave me was that when I got into journalism and then I got to the age during a great period in the newspaper's history and because I could write sport, I got an audience and then I started writing about other things and the audience came with me and that was my vocation, that was my calling, that was my everything. And um, when people tried to interfere with that, I fought them. And uh, I won 95% of my fights and my audience appreciated. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems. But getting therapy has its own problems, too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and, of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. 
So I want to go back to the bullying that you encountered. Are, are you able no. to tell us a few stories, if if you feel okay to do that, of that time? Oh, well, uh, in my mm. first year mm. I saw three bashings, one really bad one, mm. and I saw a form of bullying I'd never seen before when kids got trapped in a circle and weren't let out and they were always mm. kids who, uh, you know, had had problems and eventually they'd break and snap and run around the circle, bawling. Mm. Yeah, and one day in particular there was this one kid who got surrounded and I just saw in his face, I just saw the profound loneliness. That's what haunts me to this day is the loneliness of someone who knows he's unloved, that he's in a situation where there is no hope, Mm. no mercy, And it's the same when you see a bashing is you're seeing an alternative view of human history that Mm. people are bashed and held down. And one of the things writing the book really made me realise was how lucky I I never saw my mother bashed by my father. Mm. To live with that every day. Do you know? I I can't imagine how people get out of that. Mm, it's awful. I, reading your book, brought about a lot of memories for me. Like my parents um, immigrated from Lebanon to Sydney. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so we were different in primary school, you know, and all I wanted, all I wanted was to be the same. You know, I'd wake up every morning wishing I had blonde hair, right? That was in the early days. But one of the things that my mother did is she hand-knitted our cardigans. There were six of us, five girls and a boy, and I hated that, right? I wanted the bought-knit cardigan just like everybody else. I didn't want, I already stood out. I didn't need a cable-knit cardigan to to make me stand out anymore. But this terrible day of humiliation, and I remember it so well, we were down on the sports ground or something and I left my cardigan there and, and we came back and this none awful person said did you leave your cardigan down on the green and I said no no I couldn't remember I mean you know I was a child I was five or six do you know she got that cane out and she belted me right in front of the whole school and she said you lied here's your cardigan it's like oh my god and that added to the hatred of my cardigan (laughs) but you don't forget those things do you you do not no, and I can laugh about it, but gee, it was cruel. No, no, these are these are the experiences that create craters in our consciousness. Yeah. Do you think religious schools were more cruel than public schools, for instance? I've not thought about that. I try not to speculate on that sort of stuff. Yeah, uh, because one of the reasons I wrote the book was because everyone was speculating and they yes. were wrong. But having said that. My wife went to the local government school down the road at the same time as I was going through yeah. the cattle on the hill and she had a great education and had happy years mm. during that time. Mm. Mm. It's interesting, isn't it? In what you found out about those priests and yeah. what prompted you to write the book, how did you feel about it when that news was breaking? I know that you felt that, you know, nobody was talking from experience but how did you feel? Well, it's more, it's like every time a new story broke, it took you back there and you're back mm. in it. And some of the stories were revealing things I didn't know, uh, naming priests I didn't know about. And in one particular case, 
a fella came out and said he'd had a particular experience with a particular priest, which mirrored one I'd had with the same fella. And I hadn't been sexually abused by him, but I had been terrified by him. And he'd ended up holding me. I felt like a woman would hold, hold me. I was only 11. And this fella said he terrified him and then sat him on his knee and put his hand down his underpants. And so when that stuff comes out, you know, you're going, hang on, hang on, what's, mm-hmm. you know, what happened here? And then then one priest in particular was a repeat offender. And so some of the big kids put me up because I asked my brother Tim, I said, what sort of a kid was I like when I was 11? And he said, uh, eager to please and a bit naive. And uh, so these big kids put me up to going up and asking him for a sex lab. And he used to get kids in his room, he'd give them sex lectures and and then at the end he'd get them to pull out their cocks and he'd handle them or tap them until they got erections. And I went up to his room and I remember being in his room at night, I'm in my pyjamas, uh, I remember being relaxed because it was such because there was no privacy in the place. So in the priest's room there was some privacy. Um, but it didn't happen to me. Um and I think I, I, I think that was because it may have been that I was prepubescent. It may have been that I had a brother, an older brother in the mm. school, and had he known he would have done something. Yeah, he would have, he would have done something. And I didn't have a relationship with my parents where I, I talked to them about anything much, but he did, and he would have told my mother, and my mother my mother would have been at the school. So I think. Um, I, th- I think a variety of factors, but that was where I was most at risk. Oh, I had an incident later in my final year when I was 16 and I got a football injury and a priest gave me a semi-nude rub. And um, people, you know, everyone I tell it, oh, well, I've had, I hardly told anyone about it, but but when I did, people, I said, oh, well, you were sexually abused and that's what my wife thinks. She's a former school principal. Mm. But the reality was... Um, it didn't bother me. And I think there were a number of reasons for that, but the biggest one, you know, and this is, this is one of the hardest things to talk about because it sounds boastful, but if I have to state the big experiences in, my, in those six years of my life, one of them when I was 13, which was my worst year, when I was at my absolute, when I literally was in a state of despair, um, and I went to a party and I met this young woman and she kissed me and she was a beautiful kiss and that experience was totally transformative. I went from the spiritual desert to Kakadu in a single instant and this other world opened to me. And I tell the story in the book when I'm 14 where I go to a party and up with an older girl, we end up in a barn and... Um, it's the most incredible night. You know, it was relatively innocent what happened between us, but I connected to her power as a woman or her magic and we just lay there and it was this brilliant, cold, clear Tasmanian winter's night. And if I put a soundtrack to it, it would be Sinead O'Connor singing Silent Night, Silent Night, Holy Night, all is calm, all is bright. And in this world of chaos, I suddenly had a sense of, order and um, balance and beauty and the next day we had to go home and you're supposed to go home on on a bus in your school uniform but the brave boys hitchhiked and that was the day I hitchhiked to Hobart it was about 300 k's and do you think it's because you felt loved well 
I think that whole experience, you got to, if you believe in yin and yang, if you believe in that idea mm. that life is about a balance of the female force and the male force, boarding school was yang twisted in on itself. It was yang, yang, and more yang. Mm. And the fact that I had been at odds with my mother from a very early age over religion meant I wasn't close to her. And I don't know if I'd been touched by a woman from the time I was, you know, four or five until this girl kissed me when I was 13. And then that day when I hitchhiked to Hobart, that was the day my life changed because I discovered the road. But I heard stories that were so much more interesting than any other stories I'd ever heard because I'd get into cars, I was only 14. Mm. They thought they'd never see me again and they used to tell me things. And by the time I got to Hobart, my whole life had changed and school never bothered me after that because it never contained me or defined me. Mm. Um, I went back to it, but a big part of me was outside it. So after mm. that, it was, I never had any trouble. Not never had any real trouble after that. So in the case when the priest gave me the, the new grub, the school ball had been three weeks before, and I'd met this. She was a beautiful young woman, and um, and again, what passed between us was relatively innocent. But I felt her power. Mm. I felt like I was, you know, she gave me something, and I felt like I was wearing armour and she she you know she was captured my imagination and so when you know a 50 year old priest makes a clumsy overture to you it's it's not a hard thing to say no to it wasn't for me I know for other people I don't want to belittle the experience I know for other people it could be absolutely shattering but I'm just being honest about what I experienced. Mm. Were you? Do you think that your teenage brain, you know, 13, 12, 13, 14, were you aware? Did you were you aware of what you, was going on? Was there any inkling that that boys were being sexually assaulted by the priest? Uh, well, when I was or the priest. Well, that was when I first heard boys talking about a priest in the book of Colin Groucho. He used to get kids on his bed and wrestle with them and get up with an erection. That was the first thing I heard, and then. By the time I was 13 or 14, there's an incident in a book where I go in and one of the priests who went to jail has got a group of kids and there's a real sexual thing to it. And I sort of half understood what was going on and I heard stories, but it was in my final year when a kid, you know, virtually got raped and I was the deputy head boy and he came to me or he's brought to me and another kid, another senior boy, and when he turned around, he had semen up his back. And, oh. and that was, um, and that was, and because I did law at university, I always knew that was evidence. Not There's a big difference between evidence and hearsay. I, I respect the law in that way. And I knew, I'd, I knew what I'd seen was evidence. So uh, my wife always remembers me saying to her early on, I reckon I'm going to get run by the police. Mm. And, so, and 30 years later, I did. And oh, that wasn't at all difficult for me to give evidence. I mean, it was difficult. The difficult part when you get involved in a in a criminal case like that is being one hundred percent sure of your memory, because mm. journalism teaches you your memory lies. Because uh, when you go back to stories, you can remember parts of them crystal clear. But in my case, I always get something. There's something I've omitted, or there's something I've invented, mm. or there's something I've transposed. And so you've got to really grill yourself and. Cross-examine yourself to ensure that your that your memory is in fact what happened. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like you're living in a parallel life. You know, there's half 
you're living the life uh, in boarding school that you know, right? Yeah, you can only live the life that you know. And then there's people around you that are being assaulted and and you're not. And, you know, you, you still have to get through. You still have to live. You still, it's it's a tough it's a tough thought or process to even imagine, you know, and and also how a teenage brain processes that. Yeah, well, I, th- I think that's the key to it is how does a teenage yeah. brain process mm. um, I just wanted to do, you know, <laughs> in prison mm. terms, I just wanted to do my time and get out. Mm. And um, after I hitchhiked to Hobart and met young women and started to hear the sort of music because there was no music in the school apart from the school band and um, started to hear some of the contemporary music outside and I just knew there was this great rich world out there and I wanted in. Mm. It's like the school was cultureless, you know, in a way. Yes. Yeah, yeah. We're out of time, Martin. The book is called The Empty Honour Board. I mean, terrific read, a difficult read, but just written with with just beauty and compassion. You're just such a gorgeous writer. Thank you so much for your time. And thank you for, for your kindness. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda Audio books are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere, or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBook Store. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library, and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow, and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. 
Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.